And welcome to this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. We're here live with you each week, and we want to remind you that we also offer memberships to those of you who want to be part of this growing community. All you have to do is to go to graymatter.show, and that's gray with an E. Today, we have the good fortune of having journalist and Mideast expert Janine Zakaria with us. And if you are listening to us live, your questions, of course, are welcome. We're going to be talking with Janine about the Middle East and ongoing conflicts there, as well as challenging issues related to journalistic news coverage, especially war coverage. And she's eminently qualified to speak on both having been a war correspondent and having reported on Israel, the Middle East, and U.S. foreign policy in a storied career, which includes her having been Jerusalem bureau chief and Middle East correspondent for the Washington Post, as well as chief diplomatic correspondent for Bloomberg News and Jerusalem correspondent for Reuters. She's presently a lecturer in the Department of Communications at Stanford University, and I welcome Janine Zakaria. Hello, Michael. Hello, Janine. No relation to Fareed, although uh, many people probably ask you that, a different spelling, but the wife of Jeremy Balenson, whom I think many of our listeners know from his work in the psychology of virtual and augmented reality. Uh, Husband, but no relation. And Fareed is no relation either. But I always say he's not related to me, Michael. Not related. Yeah, well, Leslie Krasny says, uh, yeah, he's uh, my husband, but he's no relation. <laughs> I want to talk with you about some pretty serious stuff here. We can get into uh, the Middle East, but also look at it from a kind of overview first, which I talk about uh, shifting sands. It's a little corny, but it fits the bill. Um, the peace and alliance uh, that seems to have been worked out between Iran and the Saudis, the hard right turn in Israel by Netanyahu, Syria back in the Arab League after a 10-year suspension, and even uh, uh, a war in Sudan. These are seismic changes. I mentioned Sudan, though it's on the crossroads of the sub-Sahara and the Middle East. Um, these are pretty serious and dramatic shifts, and what do we make of them in an overview? Yeah, I really think it's a good time to take stock because I do think we're at an inflection point in many ways. Um, One, in terms of the region itself, you mentioned some of the shifting alliances. Foremost, most recently, uh, just a few months ago, the somewhat surprising uh, deal that was brokered by China between Iran and Saudi Saudi Arabia, which are arch enemies. So that normalization is going to have repercussions. Some we don't know. Some might be very good, such as... Uh, helping to end a sort of proxy war that's been a very deadly proxy war that's been happening in Yemen. And so you've got that kind of shift. You've got a shift in terms of how we can talk about, Michael, the way the U.S. has lost some of its um, gravitas leadership or has retreated a bit deliberately from the region and what the implications of that are. But overall, if we look at, you know, I think back Um, oftentimes to a speech I covered by President Bush in 2003, November 2003 in Washington on the anniversary of, um, it was was, was something about the NED, the democracy organization. And he talked about how 40 years of, of withstanding and tolerating dictatorships in the Middle East will no longer stand. It doesn't make the U.S. safer. And so he put democracy at the center of U.S., democracy promotion at the center of the U.S. policy in the Middle East. Today, we are no, nowhere near that. We have much more of a sense of real politique. And unfortunately, uh, 12 years after the Arab Spring, when there was so much promise in Tunisia, Cairo, and all these places for perhaps a real um, in, uh, in, you know, improvement in democracy or even democracy replacing autocracies, we're seeing the opposite, right? We're seeing um, the autocrats winning. That is the theme. The main headline for me is the autocrats are winning. As you mentioned, Bashar al-Assad, 
the one leader, as my friend Wafika has told tells me, you know, the one leader who has succeeded in defeating his own people. Right. And forgive me, Janine, but that was the one leader that Barack Obama wanted removed and wanted to essentially have abdicate because of the use of chemical weaponry. Right. And that was a, a critical moment in 2000. What was it? What year was that? 2013, when Obama, I believe, President Obama said the red line would be serious use of chemical weapons on its own people. And then we did nothing after that. And so Bashar al-Assad stayed put. 500,000 dead uh, uh Syrians from Syrian attacks, Russian bombings, 13 million Syrians fled into exile. Um, and now, just this past week, he was invited back to the Arab League summit that was in Jeddah after being um, uh, exiled from that group. So he has survived and that and he has won that war. And likewise, and I'm sure we'll speak at length about um, Saudi Arabia's Mohammed bin Salman, who was um, an outcast, uh, especially internationally after the assassination of Saudi journalist and activist um, Jamal Khashoggi at the Turkish consulate, uh, Turkish consulate, I can remind people of the gory details if they need, but um, is now um, the star in many ways. He's the, he's the leader of the region. Um, you have a, an, an essential piece that people need to read in Vox about the way Silicon Valley has cozied up to him once again. And and a, a quite awful moment for me, at least optically, last year when President Biden went and fist bumped him in Riyadh in an effort to try and get him to boost oil production because of what's going on uh, with the war with Russia. So he has he has weathered his outcast phase. Um, and so we, we have a, a, a situation where, yes, the autocrats are winning. It's... Uh creating a downbeat feeling in me, but it's a reality, and I appreciate uh, the reality that you're giving us in your analysis of real politics and how that's working. But uh, one wonders, well, how this is all going to shake out, though. I mean, the autocrats are winning in, in terms of, uh, well, not that Putin isn't necessarily winning. Uh, I mean, at least as far as the war is concerned, which brings me to another question that kind of dovetails with a lot of what you've been doing recently in terms of research and teaching, and that is... Uh, the war in Yemen almost has been forgotten. Uh, now, I don't know if it's going to change with this new alliance between Iran and, and Saudi Arabia, but it got very little coverage. Of course, Russia and Ukraine getting extensive coverage like we haven't seen before. But then you were mentioning Syria when Aleppo was bombed. Uh, there was coverage, but it didn't necessarily in any way uh, uh, correlate to what we would have expected or what we would have thought was appropriate, especially when we think about what is being covered in uh, Ukraine and Russia, and I was struck by something you said recently, that as soon as there's uh, some kind of peace signed, or at least, I don't know if there's going to be a peace signed, at least there's going to be uh, a stopping of use of weapons for a while, an armistice of some kind, the coverage will probably stop. That's the way things yeah. seem to be going. Yeah, thanks for the question, Michael. You know, uh, I teach foreign correspondence in spring at Stanford, and we, we study sort of, the main goal for the is to sort of look at how do we what do we do with underreported conflicts and and how do we how do we do a better job of covering these places when you can't physically go there and you know the research there's an academic here in california named andrew shaver who has showed statistically that unfortunately there's no correlation between the hum the, the scope of the humanitarian disaster or the number killed and the amount of coverage in the u.s media now some of these problems are structural and some of them are something else 
when in my class, the second speaker I always bring in is Sudarsan Raghavan from the Washington Post, who did spectacular reporting from Yemen, but it was very episodic. And he, he hasn't been able to go to Yemen um, for three or four years, right? So whether, the, whether you, but, but just because a reporter from the Washington Post isn't going there or can't get in because it's too dangerous or they can't get a visa, um, doesn't mean, of course, that these things aren't continuing to happen. And so I think it's a, it's a challenge um, to, 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 I think there are ways to do these stories remotely, but it's essential that we figure out ways to get correspondents back in. And of course, that goes against some of the profit motives of some of the, of the news organizations. Um, but you see this all around the world, right? Lots of vast swaths of undercover territory. Now, Syria did get more coverage. Um, the siege of Aleppo, which lasted four years, but there's a compassion fatigue that sets in. And so how do we um, continue to fight against that is one of the challenges of foreign correspondents as well. There has, of course, been outsized coverage of the Russia-Ukraine, um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine in the aftermath. But even that has become sort of um, faded into the background a little bit compared to other stories. Well, that includes Venezuela and Ethiopia, I mean, in terms of war coverage and what's going on uh, or what's not going on because of budgets getting more lean and so forth. But Yemen still remains, what, the most serious humanitarian crisis of our time almost. And yes, definitely. I mean, you, you had hundreds of thousands of people who died, not from shelling as you had in Syria necessarily, but I mean, some did, of course, but from hunger and malnutrition because of the way that 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 civil war has played out. Now, one bright spot, though, you said I was a little bit negative, which is true, I guess, but is that this rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia could lead to an end uh, of the war in Yemen, simply because one of the reasons that Mohammed bin Salman, the leader of Saudi Arabia, pursued that deal was he saw that it was a losing bet already, and he was wasting resources in this feckless war in Yemen. And so by doing the deal with Iran, He's hoping that Iran will now cut off supplies to the, the group, the Shiite group known as the Houthis that he's been fighting. So there's hope that a sort of sporadic ceasefire there could last. And then maybe the international community, although I'm not optimistic, could pump some aid, very necessary aid into that, that war-stricken country. That's one hope, at least. Uh, mm -hmm. Not necessarily a buoyant hope, but nevertheless a hope. Uh, there's also... Um, a sense that Mohammed bin Salman is um, kind of creating, as you suggested, a great deal of an impact now in these shifting sands. And we sort of have to assess what that means. There's a lot of people put a positive note on the Abrama, the Abraham Accords, Abrahamic Accords, Abraham Accords. What's, uh, what's more acceptable these days? I'm not sure. Let's call them the Abraham Accords. Uh, to some extent, adjudicated under the Trump administration and probably primarily by Jared Kushner. Uh, there was a lot of hope attached to that, just like there was with Arab Spring. Inflated hope, probably? Well, I mean, you had um, Jared Kushner negotiated these deals um, that were, for sure, I mean, you had, I think, I believe it was 2021, um, you had the U uh, Israel signing the first uh, agreements with an Arab state, the UA Arab states, the UAE, followed by Bahrain, if I remember correctly, that was the first deals with an Arab state since 1994, the Jordan Peace Treaty, right? So there, there, is, there is some value there, and, and the economic relations, at least, between the UAE and Israel um, um, are, are, are substantial. And there's a lot of cooperation in the, the arms world and the tech world and things like that, albeit still quietly. Like, it's very hard for Israelis to just go to Dubai right now. I don't think that you're going to have that much tourism there. When it came to Morocco 
uh, and Sudan, you might ask yourselves, well, why on earth would they sign a deal with Israel? Like, what is the point of that? Well, it was very transactional. And President Trump said, basically, well, what do the Moroccans want? You know, and, and they they want to have the U.S. recognize their control of the Western Sahara. Okay, let's recognize control of the Western Sahara. Okay, you want us to sign this piece of paper about Israel? Okay, we'll do it. And then with Sudan, what are the, well, all right, what do the Sudanese want? They want to get off the state sponsors of terrorism list, and they need $1.2 billion to pay off a debt to the World Bank. All right, let's give it to them. So, you know, that's sort of that. Now, for me, the, 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 the game changer would have been the Saudis, um, Lebanon, right? Syria, you know, the, the, the main powers that are, are, are closer in proximity to Israel and where you really, you would see, I think, a more substantial impact on the ground. Although Israel's kept a peace with Egypt and Jordan, although there are some who feel that Jordan is very fragile now under Abdullah more than it was under Hussein. That is, the Hashemite kingdom is going through some serious changes and they're not necessarily going to benefit the ongoing, well, at least call it peace with Israel. Yeah, you know, people have been predicting the uh, the downfall of the Hashemite kingdom for a long time there, and I don't I don't really see it. I mean, maybe because uh, I'm not on the ground there now, but I, I think that he's managed to hold on to control. I know that the Syrian refugees, for sure, put a big strain there. Um, the the lack of a resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict puts a strain on him. He has his own fights within the tri you know, the tribes, and 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 it, 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 he definitely has his domestic concerns. But as I mentioned, the autocrats win. And so the way they, they've been doing that is, you know, cracking down on um, uh, there's a certain amount of repression in all these states, including Jordan, of, of civil society. Well, speaking of autocrats winning and strains uh, because of migration, we're at a crossroads now. We're doing this uh, podcast when we haven't had the full determination of the election in Turkey, but it looks pretty likely that Erdogan will be reelected, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And his 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 opponent definitely underperformed. And, you know, it's shocking because you just had in Turkey, of course, in February, sorry, the earthquake in uh, Turkey uh, and on the border with Syria in February, which killed more than 50,000 people. And much of that was blamed on the corruption of Erdogan's own government. And so, you know, the feeling was that I guess the um, the secular candidate who opposed him was was too weak, but they yeah, they were shocked by the outcome. So now what you have is a situation where there will be a runoff on May 28th, and people are predicting that Erdogan will prevail again. This is creating a lot of anxiety for young people, in particular in Turkey, who oppose Erdogan. I was talking to a former Stanford student of mine um, who... He worked, he worked, he's working as a fixer, a reporter, helping out in the coverage of the earthquake. And he was telling me uh, just a few days ago about how, you know, his peers are planning on leaving if Erdogan wins. Now, what's interesting is, I think, part one thing that's overlooked is why he won. Not only that people think, oh, Erdogan, the strong man, he's a bit frail, actually, health-wise, but he projects a strong man point of, you know, view of himself. Um, he controls almost all the media in Turkey right now. If you if you look at the website probably of the Committee for Press Freedom or one of these organizations, Turkey is one of the worst. He has jailed so many journalists. You have journalists in exile, uh, crackdown on civil society, and there was some More than statistic. Putin? Um, 
Well, I don't know if he throws as many journalists down staircases as Putin does. And obviously, Russia's a much larger country. So raw numbers, I'm sure Russia's more. Similar approach to dissent and independent journalism. So Alp, my former student, was saying there's only maybe two news organizations left in this huge country of Turkey where they're kind of independent, where he would consider working. Right. And then there was a statistic I saw that something like in April during this critical period of ahead of the election, there were 36 hours of coverage of Erdogan on the state media versus 36 minutes for the opponent. So, you know, there there's consequences to this when you live in a state where the main news outlets are pure propaganda. Well, his opponent has been taking a tougher stand about migrants. And uh, I don't know if that's getting disseminated in the Turkish news, but. We're reading about it here. I want to, you're speaking about former students. I want to ask you about Emily Wilder. Could we get a quick update on that? It's been about two years to the day almost, isn't it? Well, do you think your listeners know the story? No, you're going to tell the story. Oh, that's okay. Just a, that's just a gambit for you to, I can do it if you like. I mean, because yeah, okay. you were at the center of uh, leadership on this. This was a student uh, of yours, I, I believe, who you championed and stood up for because essentially... Uh, it was what has been described by you as a disinformation campaign to make her seem like uh, she was totally anti-Israel. She was a Palestinian activist and a Palestinian sympathizer, but um, that was pretty much blown up into disproportion. She was working for the Associated Press at a job, a young fledgling job in Arizona, and there was pressure and essentially they let her go. I mean, so that's kind of the, the summation of yeah. it. Yeah. So it was exactly, almost exactly two years ago, I believe. It was May yeah. 2021. And Emily Wilder was a student of mine. She had taken my undergraduate reporting course, uh, actually at the beginning of COVID, and then she took my foreign correspondence class, history major, Orthodox, grew up Orthodox Jewish woman in Arizona. Um, but she, yes, she was a pro-Palestinian activist on campus as well. And she wanted to go into journalism, though. And so she worked at an Arizona newspaper, at the Arizona Republic for a while. And then she got a, 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 a junior job, very junior job at the AP based in Arizona. This was at a time when Israel was having one of its perennial conflicts with Hamas in the Gaza Strip. And around that time, Israel bombed the building that was housing the AP Bureau, uh, which was sort of a shocking, a shocking thing to have Israel bomb a building that has a U.S. major U.S. news organization in it. And a lot of reporters at the time were posting things about this, including Emily, uh, the shock of this, certainly AP employees. Also around that time, though, she'd only been there about three weeks. The Stanford College Republicans had started posting things online about how Emily Wilder is not a journalist. Um, she's a anti-Zionist activist and all that. And this got amplified through the right-wing media ecosystem um, all the way to a headline on Fox News via Ben Shapiro and Senator Tom Cotton and others' feeds. And within hours of it hitting Fox News, the AP had fired her. And so basically this, I was very shocked as her former instructor and mentor and as someone who had encouraged her to go to the AP that and they really said it was for social media posts but it did the AP didn't really explain was it past posts from when she was a student was it from this gossip thing or what was it and it was pretty oblique they were able to fire her because she was in the the three-week period of her of her thing anyway in the end this this became public and there became a big public campaign in support of Emily um it Where is she now? To, What's happened to her? She she went to work for the Santa Rosa Press Democrat for a while, and she just 
completed a, a, a year-long program at UCLA about criminal justice and law, and we're going to see where she heads next. So, um, but that was a very tough a time for me because it raised a lot of questions, very important questions for news organizations about how are they going to stand up for their reporters when they're attacked by mobs online? And also, where does your identity as a journalist start and your identity as a person start, right? What's the difference? And are we going to judge everybody by what they did in terms of activism in college? Like, what if you don't know you want to be a journalist till later? So these are the kind of questions that I, at least I think it forced the AP and others to think about after that episode. It was a good harbinger of cancel culture, too, even though it was two years ago, because uh, <laughs> yeah. it fits into the under that rubric. All right, let's talk about Israel and the middle, because when you're talking about things in Gaza, it reminds me of uh, that unfortunate use in the, I suppose, Hebrew Vulgate of doing some lawn mowing. I mean, there's recent Islamic jihadist action against Israel. Israel talks about going into Gaza, mowing the lawn, and so forth. They've got really good defense measures that are in place. But the reality is that we've got a different Israel now. I mean, there's simply no getting around it. Uh, under Netanyahu, uh, who wants to stay out of jail like Trump, uh, there is mm -hmm. a very different sense of the country being split between its secular and its religious that may be in some ways irreconcilable. I mean, at this point, I, I mean, there are huge protests against the present government, incredibly peaceful protests, but nevertheless, there's a division. I mean, there are divisions in Israel anyway between, say, the Arab population that lives there and the Jewish population, or the Sephardic and the Ashkenazi. But the reality now is, I don't think we've ever seen anything like this, and it's a turn to the right and autocracy, to use the word that you keep coming back to, that's unprecedented. Well, you know, the trend lines that we're seeing in the Middle East and Hungary and everywhere, um, to some extent, maybe, I mean, the instability, the polarization, all these things that are happening globally, is, it doesn't, Israel's not immune from this either. And certainly, uh, you've had 20, we you had 20 weeks of protests, hundreds of thousands of people coming out to protest judicial reforms, right? When we, we, could you imagine? I mean, the, the, I mean it was, it, it's in such a tiny country people are very concerned that Israel will no longer be a democracy. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, in terms of, it's very shocking. Now, the instability has been there. On November 1st, they had their fifth election in three and a half years, right? That's just been very hard to keep a coalition together. And now you, you have the most right-wing, ethno-nationalist kind of religious government in Israel's history. And there are consequences of that. I just want to read, if, you, if I may, Michael, a quote from my former editor, David Horowitz, who after that election even before the protest started, he said day after day, as he negotiates the staffing agenda for his incoming now current coalition, right? Benjamin Netanyahu is openly preparing to turn Israel from a remarkable democracy, democracy into something approaching untrammeled rule by a narrow, relatively homogenous hardline majority. And he called their conduct incomprehensible and the results potentially devastating. Now you've got in this coalition, You've got a finance minister who, uh, Betsalel Smotrich, who called for a Palestinian village, Hawara, to be wiped out, quote, after a violent mob of settlers attacked it and set it ablaze. Your justice minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir, has been convicted on at least eight charges, including a supporting a terrorist organization and incitement to racism. And now this is the government that is pushing for these judicial changes 
namely, which would give the, the, the ruling coalition, so 61 or whatever, the slight majority of the Knesset, the ability to appoint the, the high court justices. Now, this is as opposed to a special select committee of jurists and experts. And people are very concerned about this because that would mean that they could they could mold the new Israel or the future Israel in their whatever they want. They could roll back rights for LGBTQ people. They could annex the West Bank. They could really do anything they want. Israel, it's important to note, doesn't have a constitution. They have a set of basic laws, which are a little more higher power than regular laws. Um, and so this is the, the high court is the main check on on the government. And so that's why you've had these people coming out en masse. They're worried about what would an anti-democratic Jewish state mean? I mean, there's there's so much more comp, there's so much more to that. One thing I want to add, Michael, you know, I, I, was, I lived in Israel for a long time and I covered that was my main beat for like 20 years. People always said during the periods of, you know, when the heightened Israeli-Palestinian conflict or Israel and the Arab world or whatever, that the real threat to Israel would, is the civil, the civil splits, right? The domestic splits. You've got what I call the Maybe very true secular, here as well. I mean, very much so, yeah. very much so, right? The what's the? I mean, look at what's going on right now with political polarization in the U.S. I think it's, I think it's the right analogy. But you really have two Israels. You have a religious right wing. Um, Israel, right, that is pro-settlements, does not want a peace deal with the Palestinians, does not want to see Palestinian statehood. And then you have sort of the secular kingdom of Tel Aviv, the economic engine of the country, the place that all the people in the army come from, the elite forces, the tech the tech companies, they're all there. And excuse and, and, me, Janine, but the people who yeah. go into the army are not from that first group that you mentioned because they're... Well, there are some, natural, national religious, well, thank to be clear. Thank you for the correction. The Orthodox, they're exempt from military service. Right, so that's what I'm saying. So that's another fissure here and sort of underlying some of the aggravation and anger uh, in, the, in the protests is this Haredi, as you mentioned, exemption for ultra-Orthodox as well. But um, you have these two Israels and what you're seeing now, I think, is sort of the country splintering, not technically, but societally. Well, we've got some questions and let me go to them. Uh, James from San Diego gets up here first. He says, as a lecturer at Stanford, what are some of the most important lessons you teach your students regarding journalism and international reporting? Thanks for the question, oh, James. I love this question. So, um, well, first of all, the thing, that, the thing that I focus on and what I think underlies my thinking right now, coming out of the Trump years and maybe going back into them, I guess, is how are we going to restore respect for credible fact-based news? Because I think this is a key question for our democracy. And, and if we don't figure out how to do that, I don't, I don't know where we're headed, right? But what do I teach? I teach uh, news reporting and writing fundamentals, beat journalism. What is news? How do you find it? How do you do an interview? How do you verify information? How do you write uh, crisply in a way that, you know, people will actually read what you have to say? Um, and so those are sort of the, the working with sources, these kinds of things. And in foreign correspondence, again, we study... Um, examples of terrific international reporting, and we explore how to use all the storytelling tools available to us to get, I'm very focused on how to get young people reading international news. And so whether that means a narrative or a video or TikTok, I don't really care. 
but I want them to to know what's happening around the world. I, I get very distressed when you when you see these surveys from Pew or see a Council on Foreign Relations about how little Americans know about the world. Not necessarily a new phenomenon, but I'm, I'm trying to help on that front. Uh, and many of those uh, same studies show how little Americans know about their own country, for that matter. But That's let me go, true. To, go to another question here from Seattle. Kenneth wants to know, from your experience, in which directions, it's a big question, but certainly an important one, and thanks for it, Kenneth, uh, which direction should the West concentrate its efforts to further a cooperative relationship with the Middle East? Now, the Middle East is pretty broad, but I think maybe we could talk about this in terms of the Islamic Arab world particularly. You know, what I want to see happen is sort of you know, it used to be when I covered, you mentioned, Michael, in the intro that I used to cover the State Department for Bloomberg News. Part of my job then, and this was in mid-2000s, was, oh, they're going to release, the State Department's going to release their press freedom report or their human rights reports or whatever, freedom of religion reports. And all these countries would wait and get really worried about what the U.S. had to say, right? There would be consequences. So I guess we have to find a way to figure out, okay, what is what do the Saudis need from us? Okay, well, they want to do like a civil nuclear program. They need our help on that, okay? Or they want us to guarantee their security, albeit there is this deal with the Iran. Let's see how long it lasts. They want us to be their guarantors, right? They need things from the U.S. still. And so, okay, you need things from us? Well, we don't want you jailing journalists or butchering uh, a Saudi dissident journalist in the consulate in Turkey, right? So we need to be able to figure out a way if we're going to deal with these with these um, countries that are autocratic to not give them a blank check to carry out abuses. I would like to see it that way. Well, I think we shared that, but I'm just thinking about the Machiavellian pragmatism that says, you know, we have to move forward with these countries. We have to get what we can transactionally from them and therefore have to put that kind of human rights stuff aside. And if you're putting democracy aside, you're often putting the human rights aside too, aren't you? Yeah, you are. And that's what's sad about all this, right? I mean, it's, I mean, I'd like to think that we could even if we don't center it or, or bank all of it on it, but that there could be some way to, to encourage these countries not to jail so many dissidents or kill people or whatever. I mean, it's, is there not a way? I mean, uh, so I, I would like to see it um, more but centered. Now, the thing is, as we move off our dependence on oil, and I mean, look, this is so funny. I wrote a piece for the San Jose Mercury News about this years ago, about how the Saudis were doing all this uh, solar power, right? 100% renewable by 2025. They brought SunPower, a local company over, you know, to, to, to work on this with them. And now they're building this $500 billion new city called Neom, N-E-O-M. Everybody can Google it. It's going to be all run on like hydrogen fuel and stuff. Saudi Arabia, Dirty crude oil, OPEC, Aramco, Saudi Arabia is moving in that direction. Why? Because they, well, a little, some of it's like a little bit, look at us, like we're amazing. But like they're, they know the era of oil will end at some point, right? So I think, you know, at some point, maybe we're, you know, we're going to, I think Biden's probably thinking, you know, the Middle East is more of a nuisance to me right now. I have other things to think about. I need to worry. Russia has crowded out everything else and China too. Uh, one of the things I'm concerned about is that, if you look at China's brokering of the deal with Iran and Saudi Arabia, they are, they're the, we're going to, are we going to have like a new proxy war with China in the Middle East? I mean, they're the ones who are investing over there. They're the ones with the influence. And I don't know exactly what the consequences yet will be of that, except that I know the Chinese 
don't really care generally about crackdowns on dissidents and all that. So I think that's why the Saudis are pivoting that way. Are you also saying, because you suggest a pivot of the Saudis, um, that that includes less concern about spreading jihadism and what they were all about for you know, all those... <laughs> Uh, I mean, they were establishing in just every country they could a real presence of Islamic fanaticism. You know, it's a really good question, Michael, and I don't know. It's something worth looking into. I haven't seen much reporting on this, and obviously I'm not on the ground anymore there. But in terms of what they're investing in Wahhabism and exporting that ideology, at the moment, um, Mohammed bin Salman seems, and he fluctuates, right? But at the moment, he seems more... Uh, interested in at least, and maybe this is, you know, what's the version, not greenwashing or whatever, I, I don't know, Saudi washing, I don't know, but like, oh, he's the golf league, right? And he's courting tech and he's building the hydrogen city. And so he's trying to portray himself as a modern, as a modern person, but, but don't be fooled. He is, has been ruthless against dissidents in that country. Um, and the number of political prisoners in Saudi Arabia is awful. Um, he he rounded up all the top Saudi, richest people in Saudi Arabia in the Four Seasons and, and shook them down, made them transfer all their, their money over to him. He forced the Lebanese prime minister under duress to resign on TV, right? He led the most brutal, brutal war in Yemen for years and years, killed so many people. So I, you know, this guy, I mean, I think we have to just keep in mind I guess if we are going to go the realpolitik route, what we're doing. I mean, Biden went there and fist bumped him and asked him to, to boost oil um, production, at, you know, amid the Russia sanctions, and he didn't do anything. He's not, you know. So. And where's the resistance? I mean, there's none in Saudi Arabia apparently, or it's certainly not visible. It's not uh, on any radar. What about, for that matter, in Iran? There was a green revolution. There was certainly a sense that young people were rebelling against the imams. You know, I, I'm looking at this um, poster in my office here. I did an event. It says March 15th with Vali Nasser from um, Johns Hopkins. And it was the Ambassador Chris Stevens lecture, which I was, was very honored to be a part of. Ambassador Chris Stevens, of course. He was the one who was, was assassinated in Libya. He was a Libyan yes. ambassador, yeah. And you can remember all the hearings on Benghazi and whatever uh, that took up a lot of oxygen in Washington um, during the Obama administration. But anyway, the, 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 head, the title of it was, Could Iran's Regime Fall? Right? And, and there was this feeling not two months ago that the latest round of protests sparked by uh, the killing of a, of a young 22-year-old woman who was protesting, and she was, she was killed in Iranian custody, and it led to these women-led protests for weeks and weeks in Iran that maybe this is the time the regime will fall. And of course, no, they've held on. So there seems to be longevity there. Um, and I think some of the prognosticators who were predicting that maybe that regime would fall are realizing that, well, at least not yet. doesn't mean that things are going well in Iran economically or anything else. Um, but I think we have to wait and see now. I mean, I... This, this Iran-Saudi deal could change the way things go. And if we meet in a year, we'll, we'll know better. But it's so new that I'm not sure how much stock to put into it. Well, it doesn't necessarily bode well for the Israelis who thought they were making headway uh, in terms of allying themselves with the Saudis against Iran. 
Yeah, Prime Minister Netanyahu, um, you know, I've covered him since 1996 when he surprised everyone. And this was after Yitzhak Rabin's assassination. And there was a, an election between him and Shimon Perez, And everybody thought Perez was going to win that night. We woke up and there was Bibi. And he's, you know, I think served 15 out of those years, uh, um, intermeaning years. But he has been consistent in one area over the time. And it is namely that his biggest concern is Iran. He really doesn't want to be bothered with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, and so everything he does is about Iran. If you remember when he came during uh, President Obama's administration and spoke to both houses of Congress and lectured against the U.S.-Iran nuclear deal, I mean, that was a striking moment, too. Um, and he so definitely part of the Abraham Accords that you mentioned earlier in all of this was a way to build an alliance with the Arab states and Israel against Iran. So now if the Saudis, the main Arab state, are, are together with Iran, what does that mean for that alliance? Now, the Israelis have demonstrated, although they'll never admit it, that they seem to be able to thwart or delay Iran's nuclear program with covert actions. Um, so they seem to be dealing with it. But on the other hand, I don't know what this means for you know, look, look at it this way. I mean, I've been saying a lot of things about Mohammed bin Salman, but the U.S. has wanted to do a deal with Iran again as well, uh, which President Trump withdrew from. So they want Biden wanted that. And so what are the Saudis going to say? No, I can't do a deal with Iran. You you wanted to do a deal with Iran, too. So I guess in terms of Israel, I, you know, I don't know that the Saudi Iran rapprochement again is going to thwart those concerns about the Iranian nuclear program, not only for Israel, but for the other Gulf states, the UAE, Saudi, etc. They still don't want Iran to have a nuclear weapon. Well, we don't even know if this rapprochement is going to work, but the reality is that the Saudis may not feel that kind of urgency to get nuclear weapons to be in a nuclear weapon race with Iran. That, that could be, be a plus. Honestly, plus that's a plus. It. Yeah, yeah, that is a plus. And Egypt was in, certainly concerned also about moving in that direction. I mean, I have a little concern about, I want to get everybody's questions in here, and you got lots of questions. Okay. Uh, this is Chris from Tempe, Arizona, and thanks for the question, Chris. Actually, he says, my family and I lived in Israel for six months on a Fulbright Research Fellowship, 1992-93. We returned to the U.S. with a richer, deeper sense of life there than the one we had from prior public discourse. How might that richness and nuance be shared? Hmm. He, that's really, you know, that was sort of, you know, that's, that was sort of my job, I think, as a foreign correspondent based there to try and tell some of those stories. You know, one of the, one of the rakes on foreign correspondents and international reporting is that we only, we only, if it bleeds, it leads the cliche. And so we don't always do a very good job of that. And, you know, honestly, I think going to these places, I still think I'll have to ask my virtual reality husband, what you, as you mentioned, Jeremy Balance, and how we can do this, because we can't all go and run around the Middle East and things. But I had such a privilege uh, as a reporter who got to go to these places and live in these places and regularly be with the people, is that that's where you feel that nuance. If you only read even the credible fact-based media, you do not have a sense of what it's like to be in these places, right? I mean, I've been, I've had experiences in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt, and, and all across Israel, and the West Bank, Gaza, Lebanon, I mean, all Iraq, like I've get to be with the people. And pretty much what you find when you go to these places is what you expect anywhere, that the, the caricatures that unfortunately come through in very limited reporting from a lot of these places are not necessarily the reality of what everybody wants. 
They want to have a cup of tea with you. They want to show you their lives. They want you to meet their kids. They want to talk about their dreams and hopes. I mean, it's cliche, but it's pretty much universal anywhere I've gone. Well, the next question actually kind of dovetails with this. It's from Mike in Brooklyn, and thanks again for the question, Mike. He says, what would you recommend as a fix to propaganda culture and the conflict in the Middle East? A fix to propaganda culture. Yeah, let's have so, to shut down the Internet to begin with. I think. You know, <laughs> I don't, I'm, I'm not being flip here, but the reality is there's so much on social media that can't be stopped that I don't know. That's where so much of the propaganda emanates, and that's where so much of the propaganda resides. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think um, it's so different and things have changed so quickly. I don't know we appreciate how quickly this transformation has happened. So when I would go to some of these places like Tunisia or whatever, pre-Arab Spring and, you know, or any of the Arab states really that were controlled, you know, by a dictator of sorts, like you have the lead story on the TV that night, which, you know, oh, President Ben Ali today met with the children and the whatever, you know, and, and and then the second story would be the Israeli pal the Israelis are killing Palestinians or whatever, and then I don't know what you get after that. But those were it was pretty much a fixed thing, and now the media environment is so, I mean, in some ways it got more diverse, right? And then, but now you've got this 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 shutdown of independent journalism. So a lot of this is about how do we make sure that people in those countries can access good quality news, and that's a challenge. I mean, one of the projects I'm working on with my students right now. Um, you had World Press Freedom Day, May 3rd, and it's we're looking at uh, doing profiles of exiled journalists from around the world, and some of them are from the Middle East. These are journalists who had to flee and are trying to write about their countries from abroad using the tools available to them. I think one of the answers is to sustain these kinds of people, especially from Afghanistan right now and Russia, but not only. Some of these other countries that were once kind of democratic and now their journalists have had to flee. They're still trying to do reporting. So I would love some kind of investment in that because um, that would be another source of quality news where you can push back against some, some of the propaganda. Turkey and Turkey is a great example where I, I hope that we could we could help work on that. It's a, it's a sort of a side project of mine. What are we going to do about, um, well, we've got, for example, Wall Street Journal reporters being held by Putin in Russia for charges of espionage, which seem completely drummed up. I mean, those kinds of things continue to haunt journalists. Thanks for mentioning Evan, Michael. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. You can, no, I mean, I, don't, I hope that the listeners um, appreciate how just outrageous the arrest of Evan Gershkovitz is in, in, in Russia. And I am just apoplectic about, I, I, I mean, I don't want to just post online, hashtag I stand with Evan. I think everybody should be writing to their congressman, I mean, doing, I don't know what else, we have to be able to get him out of jail. That's crazy. I mean, this is, this is the kind of work I used to do, like go to these countries, go to Russia, write stories, and they've arrested an American journalist. I mean, it's, it's just crazy. I mean, I, we have to figure out a way to get him out. And unfortunately, I don't know what our leverage is. I mean, I guess the Russians, they have their list of people they want to trade like they did for Brittany Griner. It's above my pay grade. But what I do know, I think there's a cost. Let me say, get a little political here for a second, Michael, with your permission. There is a cost to having a president for five years, you know, from the moment he came down the golden escalator to the whatever, through his time in office, where you repeatedly call American journalists the enemy of the people, uh, fake news. Now you have dictators around the world 
using those phrases in the Philippines, um, uh, in any place where they want to shut down the media or arrest them, they use that phrase, fake news now. And so if the U.S. is going to do it, then, you know, well, we can we can arrest journalists, too. Putin uses and, it, too. Putin talks about fake news. Putin talks absolutely, about absolutely. Yeah. Uh, here's uh, James again, who says, I miss, or I, I read your newsroom playbook for propaganda reporting. In the upcoming 2024 elections, do you see some changes in the ways disinformation will be used? Yeah, thank you for the question. So coming out of the uh, 2016 election and the hack of the DNC emails and, um, and the way that was covered in 2016, um, I was part of a working group at Stanford on uh, Russian propaganda, basically international propaganda. And out of that working group came this idea that unless the media understand it and think of ways to cover it, we're going to, this is going to be a problem that we're going to continue to have. So I set out to meet with, um, newsrooms about the way they think about these issues of, um, deliberately false information or what's known as malinformation so information that's released to harm someone but that is true but it's and the main the main idea that we were promoting my my colleague andy grotto and i um was that journalists need to think about the provenance of the material it's not only what's in it it's not only oh what john podesta's risotto recipe was or whatever people were cherry picking at that time it, or the Hillary Clinton's, uh, how much she made at speeches on Wall Street. It's why is this information being injected into the information system now? And in that case, it was to hurt Hillary Clinton's candidacy. So what needs to happen, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you don't report the information if it's newsworthy, but can you um, flick at the top and explain to the reader why and who is pushing it out now? And if you don't know, at least you have to acknowledge that until you do know. I think... Uh, we have seen some improvements in this regard. I, I do see people being more skeptical about information, more aware of it. Um, but we have such a, I don't even know what to call it. It's chaos right now in social media, especially at Twitter. I mean, all the things that were, I mean, actually, I, I commend to you all. Facebook, actually, and I don't often say positive things about Facebook. They put out, uh, it doesn't get enough attention. They put out a, a definition of state media uh, that is great, that everybody should go and, and get. Um, and, you know, they're still wrestling with these things, but Twitter, I mean, oh my God, that's a whole other story, different story, Michael. So I, I think that the media um, will, understands that threat, but in a way that was yesterday's threat. Now we're going to have I mean, AI generated things. We're going to, I mean, journalists have to be fact checkers all the time just to see what's real. Yeah, I'm afraid I'm with you on that too. Uh, and um, Kenneth from Seattle says, it's been said that the Palestine leadership never misses an opportunity to miss an opportunity. How do you see the Arab-Israeli relationship progressing? Thank you for the question, Kenneth. Or is it progressing? <laughs> we, we're in a stasis right now for so many years. And I think what's going to, lead to something and i don't think it's going to be good is when mahmoud abbas dies right my my same friend muafik um i mentioned earlier always quips that you know lebanon is a state without a president and the palestinians have a president but no state and so they have this leader mahmoud abbas from the fatah party kind of still holding on they're not having they haven't had elections in i forgot how long 15 years 20 years i don't know they and so he's just there i guess and then you've got Hamas still controlling uh, the Gaza Strip. And so, you know, Israel, 
says, why well, can't, we're not going to do a deal with the Palestinians. Well, they're not, do- this government's not doing a deal with the Palestinians because they want to annex the entire West Bank and the, you know, you've got ethno-nationalist right-wingers. But five minutes ago, we did have, let's remember, um, a different kind of government that actually had an Arab coalition partner, an Israeli Arab coalition partner. So things can change very quickly in the Israeli political system. So just wanted to remind people of that. And so, but what the Israelis say is, well, we're not doing a deal with Hamas, which calls for Israel's destruction, right? So are they going to, first, the Palestinians need to align themselves. Now, there are some people who say, well, we need to, Israel needs to do some, maybe a West Bank first deal. But these kinds of conversations are oh so very 2005 or six. And it's, you know, unfortunately, I think a lot of Israel... And one of the rakes on the on the protests is that, you know, there's really very little mention of the Israeli occupation. You're talking about Israeli democracy, but you're not talking about the fact that you're occupying Palestinians still. They're very pro, post, post-Palestinians, post kind of like they don't want to think about it. They don't see a way around this, this problem of Hamas and Gaza. So, and now, now that you don't have the U.S. leadership on this issue, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, it was always the U.S. leading the negotiations, not that that worked. So maybe we do need something different. But the U.S. was going to be Israel's guarantor to allow them to make the concessions they needed to make a peace deal with the Palestinians. Um, And that's why, I guess, if you listen to some commentators, they believe the two-state solution is dead. There may be another two-state solution, Gaza and the West Bank becoming one state, or at least joining and coalescing in some way that they haven't in the past. That seems in some ways more likely than a two-state solution between Israel and the Palestinians. Because if that's What's a two-state end? solution, it would be just between Israel and Fatah, as you were indicating earlier. Well, but, I think what you're describing, Michael, is kind of like a th- maybe. I mean, yes. I mean, if the West Bank and Gaza got together, I mean, that was always the vision. But I mean, Fatah and Hamas, you know, there's no love lost there. I mean, so I don't know. Some people talk about a three-state three states there, right? You have Gaza and Palestine and the West Bank. But all these solutions, like people aren't really talking about it anymore. It's but it's just there's a talk of the one state solution. It's all going to be one big territory. And that's and and because of all the settlements, I mean, everybody getting more intertwined. I mean, the budget that passed just now is calling for 500,000 more settlers and the Jewish settlers in the West Bank. So that's certainly not a move towards uh, two-state solution. No, it's just that's the, the priority of your current government. Yeah. yeah, and everything's kind of in limbo, really. It's as if the idea of a two-state solution, which at one point seemed viable and got a lot of support, has just gone into deep freeze. Yes, that's right. I'm sorry to say that, but there's a question from Colin. Have you ever? Thank you, Colin, for this. Uh, have you ever imagined that the facts of fact-based journalism could somehow be validated with a creative use of blockchain technology? If so, how might that be realized? How might it get hijacked and how could we protect it from being hijacked? You know, it's interesting. When I talk to my conservative friends and I I say this thing about I want to restore respect for credible fact-based news and then they'll say to me, well, who's facts? You know, very Kellyanne Conway, right? Alternative Um, facts, she said, yeah. Alternative facts. And so we have to even get, before we even get to the blockchain, we have to get to a situation where there is a certain set of facts in the world. Michael, maybe you can help with this, right? You, I, I, it, I mean, we have to figure out um, how to depoliticize certain issues. And I think that's a challenge. I think that um, I don't know how to use the blockchain until we figure out, okay, well, what do we want to protect? Which, what are we, what are we trying to preserve? 
when you have we have such a I mean, this is I'm sure you've already had programming on this recently, but it's, you know, the, it's not only journalism, journalists that nobody trusts anymore. I mean, the numbers are are devastating when you look at the Pew reports on and especially Republicans don't trust journalists. Uh, but 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 across the board, trust is very low and it's it's low in all our institutions. Right. Coming out of covid, of the CDC, of Congress, of everything. So we don't trust people we, who work at the voting uh, sites. We yes. don't trust people who work in healthcare. We don't. I mean, in fact, a lot, the diminution of trust is, I think, a serious, pervasive, ubiquitous problem. We need an emergency, like Marshall Plan on restoring trust in this country. My colleague Jeff Hancock here at Stanford is. He does wonderful work. If anybody wants to to read some of his work on trust. Um, yeah, but how do you restore it, it, trust? I mean, for example, trust in journalists. When when journalists are looked at uh, as being unreliable and as being the enemy of the people, as you indicated earlier, you, you know what I want to do, Michael? Maybe build from the bottom up. I don't know. No, no, I have ideas. Actually, you want to hear? Yeah, I hear. I mean the uh, one of the problems with the the you know we'll take everybody back to Craigslist and that led to the demise of the advertising model of the news organizations and so nobody has any money anymore and which means they had to fire a lot of reporters so how many people listening to this podcast right now actually m have met a journalist or has seen one in their lo daily lives so if you can't if you don't know any journalists it's very easy to demonize them so one of the things i'd like to do is at scale, and there are some of these initiatives do happen, is go into counties where distrust of journalists is high, are, is high and recreate a newsroom with people and let them come with their story ideas. Forget politics. Everybody has concerns about transportation and schools and, and uh, safety and sports and whatever. And let them pitch their ideas and let them meet the journalists and understand the process. I was never a big transparency and journalism person, but now I am. I'm all on board. We have to show how we do our work. The difference between a real credible news organization and a propaganda outlet, right? Or what's called pink slime, which are these things that you get free on your doorstep and they're funded by a political party. You got to be very wary of these things. And I'm hoping that by introducing people to real journalists, maybe they'll trust them more. That's at least one small initiative I think we could we could have. You're talking about close to home or again in democracies though, because all these autocrats that we've been talking about don't really give much concern about what you just described or wouldn't give. No, no, this I'm to, talking uh, about uh, Lucerne, Pennsylvania or Fresno or yeah. whatever, you know. Here's Dimitri, uh, again with a big question. Considering the longstanding geopolitical interests of the United States, Russia and China in the Middle East, how are their recent foreign policies and strategic decisions influencing the region's political dynamics? Well, as I've mentioned, I think that um, Russia's thrilled right now because, I mean, well, they've got this crazy war going on. They're all consumed there. But Bashar al-Assad was their guy. He's their guy. He backed them. So he, they're happy to see that he has prevailed in the devastating war in Syria, where, again, he killed half a million of his own people. Um, so they're, they're feeling pretty good about that right now. Uh, remember that the Russians on the Security Council were able to block any sort of meaningful action or accountability for Bashar al-Assad. So he's really um, free to go a lot of places. And the the Saudis are, are very happy to have Chinese investment, which is, I think, the highest outside investor in the region, in the Middle East right now, doing all the building and construction and all that. And so they have a very nice transactional relationship. In return, they get to buy buy all the Saudi oil and whatnot. So I think that, you know, you've got, I mean, China is its own 
form of repression. And so you've got all these countries that are sort of doing their thing without having to worry about U.S. censure. I mean, that's, to me, the main thing that I'm seeing there. And the U.S. has got its attention elsewhere right now. So, um, I mean, I want Michael, this is a bit of, of unrelated, but I just want to point out something that happened recently. Because of our shenanigans here on the debt ceiling, the President of the United States had to leave a major, major summit, an international summit, right, in Asia. It's like... How can we have a foreign policy when our own domestic politics are so messed up right now? So I think I'm not making excuses, but it's, um, you know, it's almost a luxury to be able to think about, oh, what's our relationship to the Middle East going to be? Well, what do you got? He's trying to like raise the debt ceiling and he's dealing with Ukraine. Like, I don't know. So the Middle East is just not the focus of the United States right now. But I do believe that we we need to think again strategically about how do we deal with these countries in that region? especially in light of the Iranian, you know, nuclear program, especially. That's a main, the main issue in that region for the U.S. and for Israel. I think it's safe to say, without being partisan, that the division in this country or the polarization is so great, even with the two parties, that it means a difference in terms of who our allies are and how we respond to our allies, how we respond to NATO, how we respond to the war that's going on between Ukraine and Russia. I mean, there are changes there, F-19s now and... Uh, I mean, just as we're speaking, uh, Russians actually fighting Russians on the border and so forth that is going on in real time that we have to stay abreast of in some way and take a stand with. But two parties seem to be divided and divided in irreconcilable ways. I mean, certainly, I mean, this is beyond the scope of this conversation, but it's worth just pondering for a moment that you have many in the Republican Party who have been pro-Putin. Right. And and have not come and have been very critical of, of Ukraine and not and, and saying we shouldn't be supporting Ukraine. Um, it's a distraction. I mean, so I mean, this is this is not Ronald Reagan's uh, Republican Party. It's to state the obvious. So I, I think you I'm know, sorry, I'm not, laughing because I remember Ronald Reagan's political party was the 11th commandment is thou shalt not say anything against another Republican. And now we have this war going <laughs> well, yeah, on between, between Trump and DeSantis, uh, which also seems irreconcilable and pretty vicious, actually. Yeah, but the, again, like I think the point here is that we can't. It's very hard to have a coherent foreign policy right now when domestically we are so fragmented. Yeah, and I keep thinking about what you said about the fist bump of uh, Biden's after he oh. denounced Khashoggi. Uh, so I mean, there's enough to heap on in criticism on both sides. Uh, I want to make that clear. This is gray matter. We don't try to see things more gray than we do black and white, or at least not. Uh, <laughs> in ways that are dogmatic. Dr. Nair, Janine, it's a pleasure talking to you and always a learning experience. Thank you so much from the bottom of my Thank you for having me, Michael. And thanks to all who heard this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny live, and a thank you to all of you who will be hearing us in the future. If you have not yet done so, be sure to join and become a part of this growing community of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny by going to graymatter.show. That's gray with an E. And thanks to our Gray Matter team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, and special thanks to this episode's special guest, that's Janine Zakaria. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.